0: Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. We have reached the century mark. This is episode 100, and I don't know anybody that wore number 100, so uh, we're just happy to get there.
1: I'm surprised we did going to get canceled.
0: I am too. Uh, I'm thrilled we didn't, and I'm also going to start this podcast off by saying thank you. I'm so grateful to every one of you guys who listen on a weekly or multi-weekly basis. Uh, in the case of... Our time here during quarantine, during the coronavirus scenario, your reaction to what we're doing, and the fact that so many people have found Marty Smith's America and begun to download it and subscribe, rate, and review is humbling to Travis and to me. We've done very well, and we're grateful for that, and ESPN is grateful for that, and our sponsors are all grateful for that, so thank you guys so much. This week's show is awesome. Awesome. And kind of hard for me as somebody who, as 13-year-old Marty, watched live as Michael Jordan made the shot in the 1989 Eastern Conference playoffs against the Cleveland Cavaliers over Craig Elo and pumped my fist in our den in Parisburg, Virginia, as hard as Michael pumped his fist on that floor that line of demarcation, that that seminal moment in Michael's career and in the Bulls' dynasty evolution, to have the opportunity to interview the person who was on the other side, the crushing side, the emotional, the devastating side of that. Craig Elo, who was charged with guarding Michael in that moment and who has carried that moment with him for the rest of his life. To have the opportunity to chat with Craig was one of the joys of my life, and I told him that, and I want you guys to understand one thing. The grace and the humility that Craig carries with him about that moment will be striking to you. It certainly was for me, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Not only do we get to spend time with Craig ELO who had a tremendous NBA career. I mean, the guy played for 14, 15 seasons. And we get into all that as well. But not only do we get the great opportunity to chat with Craig, I also asked a great friend of mine, Derek Anderson, who also had a long and distinguished NBA career, to join us as well. Derek was one of the five players, along with Ray Allen and Vin Baker and Eddie Jones and Michael Finley that Michael Jordan chose to be the original cast of five that would wear Brand Jordan and represent Brand Jordan after its inception. And what that was like and, and how he got chosen and what it's like to sit in a meeting across from Michael Jordan and all of the amazing work that Derek does in the Louisville community, even still, every single day with his Stamina Project and Foundation Just an amazing, amazing podcast here, if I do say so myself. And Travis did a great job getting Craig Elo to join us and and give us the insight of what it's like to be kind of on the receiving end of that historic moment when Michael Jordan hit the shot. Before we get to Craig and Derek, This is such a unique time of change, and we want you guys to know that ZipRecruiter's focus has not changed. They're still doing what they've always done, and that is helping people find work and helping businesses find the right people for the open roles that they have. If you're looking for a job, ZipRecruiter is working with you to find the right job faster. They're dedicated to helping you get hired from caretaking to delivering food and goods to building medical facilities, supplying protective equipment, and so much more. In fact, ZipRecruiter's app will help send you up-to-date job openings so you're the first to apply. And if you're actively hiring, ZipRecruiter will find candidates to apply to your most urgent roles, making it faster and easier to reach the people you need right now. By connecting people who need jobs and companies that need those people, ZipRecruiter is working with all of us so we can keep moving forward. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. Craig, let's just start with a fundamental question that you're one of the guys that can answer it. Describe the challenge of guarding Michael Jordan.
2: Oh, um well, first of all, I know my dad taught me at a very early age that there's nothing better than to consider yourself the best player on the court at all times and to play against the best. So going up against MJ, you know, my first three years in the league, I didn't get to play much. And then when I got to Cleveland, of course, Chicago's in our our division. So the opportunity to get to see him, at, you know, six times during the season and then a couple of times in the playoffs was um always something that uh, you know anybody would ever dream about you know being on center stage with the guy that was the best basketball player at that time
0: where does he rank among the most difficult assignments you ever faced
2: oh he's at the top I mean there's no question about it and um, you know I get asked all the time too at this point like uh, who is the guy that would be the you know emulate him in in, uh, in NBA today and uh, I just can't compare anyone. I mean, Kobe was the closest. But, yeah, MJ was just I, – I, he was I, – I can't even tell you. The, the God-given ability uh, that was placed in that body was just insane. And then um, after what I heard his dad say, you know, tell Michael he can't do it and he'll go out and do it, um, really helped a lot to understanding. But he was one of those guys that, like I said, it was innate ability, just instincts. And then he worked and and made himself better, and you know at first in the league he was you took away the drive because that's what you were going to do, and then all of a sudden he starts working on his 15 footer. Now you got to go out and get a hand up on him there, and then he goes around you. So and then he even increased that to uh, a three point shooter, and he was just uh, again it was God given, and he he worked and made himself better, and now that I kind of know. You know what was instilled in him from his parents, that helps uh, put a lot on it too because he wasn't one of those that just sat back and didn't work on it. So he will always be at the top of that list.
0: You noted the 15-footer. We'll discuss the 15-footer in just a few (laughs) minutes. But before we get to that, man, people may not know. All right, so three times in your career you notched your career high, 31. And the three guys that you went for 31 against happened to be Neek, who I mean, Dominique's a human highlight film. Right? Yeah, right. Ron Harper and MJ. You went <laughs> for thirty-one against MJ Craig. What was that night like?
2: Oh, uh, that was crazy. It was uh, that was a great game. I mean, I don't know if you really know Coach Wilkins, but he was a calm, collective, real kind of mild-mannered demeanor. But that game, I, I think it was early in the season. At that point, he got thrown out in the first half with a technical. And then Coach Hamm, our assistant, took over, and uh, I was lucky enough to be on the court and knock down some shots. And it was a great game. Um, I think it was his uh, high-point game, 69, and it was an overtime (laughs) loss to Chicago. So, yeah, I mean, again, if I'm going to be associated with, uh, you know, the greatest player of all time, you know, being in in a game where he scored his high-point game, uh, but, yeah, I, I was able to knock down some shots, hit some big threes, and uh, tie the game a couple of times to send it to overtime. So I can't tell you how many times he was on the all-defensive team, but uh, on certain nights he couldn't guard me, right?
0: <laughs> hey, look, man, How many, I'd love to know that stat. I probably should have done a little better homework and looked up how many guys went for 31 when he was checking them. It
2: can't be that many.
0: I mean, it just can't. No. So I'm hanging my hat on that if I'm you, brother. <laughs>
2: Uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate
0: it. So let's dive into the shot, since it's been such a hot topic of conversation with the last dance, and of course the the fourth installment being so centered on that moment. Folks forget that you had twenty four that night, and I read that you had a bad foot. You were nursing an injury. <laughs> what is, what were you injuring it uh, uh, nursing at that time? Injury wise.
2: All right. Uh, so. Um you know we're uh, at practice coach Wilkins loved to keep the intensity and competitive level up uh, so we were um, and and at that time in the NBA we only had 12 guys on the roster so the starters were going against uh, the bench guys who I was a a bench guy my assignment was to uh, as when we ran Chicago's plays and practice was uh, to be Michael Jordan so I tried to make a Michael Jordan move and I rolled my ankle and (laughs) it swelled up so big and so fast. Uh, And, you know, I I, I can't even tell you, but, you know, it was going to be game five and there's no way I'm going to miss that game. So we taped it up pretty uh, tight. My trainer got us, got me some high tops and we laced them up and went out there uh, and played. So, yeah, I was trying to make a Michael Jordan move in practice on Ron Harper of all people. And rolled my ankle.
0: <laughs> what comes with being Michael Jordan in practice? How's that work?
2: Oh oh well, first of all, you know, having uh played against him so much, I I I know I knew a lot of his moves, but again, his, you know, ability was all just instinctive and innate and you know, I had to really work at, at trying to make his moves, but you know, no better person to play him than the guy that guards him all the time, so um, I was having fun with it because uh, you know I was getting to shoot every almost every time we had the ball. So uh, <laughs> I was having fun with it, and um, I got to honestly say I don't know if Hart uh, was guarding me really tight when I did that, but uh, I'm sure I'm, I might have got around him when I did that. So
0: <laughs> you said a moment ago that you feel like MJ is the goat. I agree with you. My childhood hero. No offense. Yeah. Entering that playoff series with the Bulls, how would you describe how you and your teammates viewed Michael as a player?
2: Oh well, first of all, you know my son was Brad Doherty, and mm-hmm. um, Brad was fortunate enough to uh, to play with Michael. Yep, call his teammates. So uh, he was always giving us uh, some insight on who he was and how and how he uh, approached the game. So that that was a good thing, but. Um, at that point in, in, in both the Bulls and the Cavs' history, you know we were building the team, which they did. They started with Ron Harper and Brad Doherty and Mark Price and Hot Rod Williams. and uh, The Bulls were the other up-and-coming team just because of Michael and his status, and we were both chasing the Pistons. So when people were talking about who's going to be the team to knock off the Pistons, uh, the only two teams that they were talking about were the Bulls and the Cavs. Well, that year we actually won 57 ball games, finished second to the Pistons in the division, and beat the Bulls all six times that we played them in in the division, three at their place, three at our place. So we felt like we had the upper hand. And then you know, the other coaches and even Magic Johnson was saying that we were going to be uh, the team of the 90s because of the nucleus uh, that, and the way they built the team. So we had all the confidence in the world and. The year before we made the playoffs just because we, uh, with 42 wins, but we were the sixth seed and they, and Chicago was the three seed. So we lost to that, uh, five game series to them. And now it's kind of flipped, uh, in the next season. So we were very, very confident that we could, uh, you know, take, take the bulls in in the first round and start moving on in, in the playoffs.
0: You noted that roster just a moment ago, and you guys were stacked, Craig. I mean, it was Mark Price, you, Larry Nance, Brad Doherty, Hot Rod. It was just dudes, athletic dudes everywhere. What happens if you guys win that game instead of lose that game?
2: If if that shot doesn't go in, I, I honestly can say in my heart and just believing in the team that they built and, and Coach Wilkins leading us that we could have won at least one championship during that time. I feel sorry for Cleveland because <laughs> the the drive happened, the fumble happened, and now the shot happened. And so it kind of just went along with, you know, Cleveland sports teams. But uh yeah, I mean, it, it didn't like kill our confidence, but it just um, maybe put that little question mark in the back of our minds. Like, you know, this guy is a stud and he, he is, is the NBA right now. So if we're going to get by uh, him, I mean, we're going to have to do something really spectacular. So if that shot doesn't go in, you know, I'm fist pumping and maybe Michael's on the floor, uh, crying about losing, uh, because it, it, it was devastating, Mario. I can't tell you. I mean, we, like I said, we had a great season and the uh, fans were out and very supportive and so loud that game. Uh, it it really hurt losing that game. So it kind of took the wind out of ourselves, if you want to say that.
0: Walk me through the play from the moment Mm -hmm. the timeout was called to the seconds after Michael hit that game winner. Every detail you can remember.
2: So can I just do the six seconds where we scored? Sure. Because it'll help explain a little bit. So uh, they scored and went up by one and six seconds left. So we called timeout. Coach Wilkins was again amazing, uh, the play he drew up. He put Mark Price in the far right corner, Harp on the far right wing, and Brad at the top of the key. And he put Larry on the post. Larry's six foot eleven and I'm six foot seven. They have Craig Hodges guarding me. So Coach says just throw it straight into Larry, lob it up there high, and here's the deal. If whoever's guarding you, when he jumps in the air to kind of take your vision away, throw it, and then just cut to the basket hard. Well, we occupied the offside defense with Mark Price because I'm sure everybody thought he was going to get the basketball. And the give and go worked perfectly. So we scored three seconds left. They called timeout and to advance the ball. And we didn't really do anything in the timeout because we had a timeout. So the first thing Coach said was we're going to let them go out, set up, and then see what the lineup is and where everybody's at, then we're going to call a timeout. So that first timeout, we're just kind of catching our breath and, and kind of enjoying the one-point lead. We go out. They got Scotty in the, in the nearest corner. They got Cartwright on the baseline on the opposite side, and Hodges on the, in the far corner on the opposite side. Brad Sellers throwing the ball in, and Michael's at the top of the key. So – I mean, we all knew Doug Collins was going to get him, the Michael, of basketball. So we, I mean, there was no question about that. So we kind of, Coach Wilkins was old school and he didn't really take, he didn't like taking somebody off of the ball. And in hindsight now, maybe we should have done uh, the double team with, you know, two guards instead of Larry, but he took Larry off the ball. Brad had a clean look and, Michael lost Larry with a little jab to midcourt, and then I was behind him, so I was just kind of left with him by myself, and I was kind of lax. I wasn't in a great defensive uh, p- posture, so I, I was running out to the wing. As soon as I got to the wing, he would already taken a dribble back towards the free throw line, and uh, so I was uh, running to catch up again. So instead of sliding, like defensive slides or closed out on him, you know, I was always kind of chasing him, so I'm not going to say I can ever outjump Michael Jordan, but he does uh, defy the law of gravity. Everybody talks about, you know, that I played great defense, and I did get my hand up, and it it was, uh, you know, right in his face, but my momentum was going uh, sideline to sideline, and where he was going straight up, he just waited for me to fly by, and as soon as my hand went by, he let go with a shot, and I turned to watch, and I I just felt like, you know, in my mind, it it was going to be short. It was going to be flat. It was going to hit the rim, and we were going to win. And he did it, man. He put uh, the right arc on it. It hit the back rim a little bit, but it went through, and, you know, that's it. They moved on, and Kenny Smith today says we go fishing. So that's what happened.
0: How do you carry that moment with you?
2: At first, it was tough, Uh, even after I retired in 1997, and, you know, uh, I was a third-round pick, so playing 14 seasons was kind of a reward itself, but, you know, never getting by the Bulls and and kind of being in that iconic uh, moment of, like, Michael's first real shot with the Bulls that kind of propelled them into the championships, I think, so it was tough, you know, to to swallow or stomach, but... um, after a while, all of a sudden, you know, now Gatorade's calling and saying, can we use it, this image? And I was like, yeah. And then he's like, oh, yeah, well, we'll send you a check. So And then Nike did it. And then so I felt like, well, the thing that really tipped the, the, or the, my tipping point on it and to enjoy it was I already was excited that I was, if my signature moment was going to be with Michael Jordan, that I could live with that but uh when people started like giving me money for it and calling me on on uh the day that it happened to celebrate the anniversary uh I was going to ride that horse as far as I could
0: so so what you're saying is we shouldn't feel sorry for you you're good
2: i'm good no i am i'm <laughs> definitely good I, but i'm not going to lie to you marty it, it was not easy even in those first few years uh when people were calling but I, I really realized that it was like what my dad said. I got I got to be on center stage with the best basketball player in the NBA at that time, you know, go man-on-man man with him, and who wouldn't want that? I mean, I, I, I can tell you in my driveway where my dad had my hoop up when I was small, I hit shot after shot that won championship after championship and free throws that did it. So uh, I think we all uh, have been there and done that, so – I you know I was on center stage and it was a great game. The only thing that kind of eases the pain is, and I think we all do this as as players, is if the offensive game you know was was pretty good, it helps ease the pain of a loss. And so I did. I, I had a pretty good uh, game. I hit some big threes in those last two minutes of it, and uh, so that kind of helped ease it. But I mean. I, I really believe in my heart, and I think everybody else from Wayne Embry to Coach Wilkins uh, believe too that we w- we could have won a championship if if that shot would have gone different. How did it
0: impact you to see Ron Harper's comments on the last dance? Of that <laughs> that <moment? laughs>
2: well, I, you know, I was uh, I rushed home uh, from our lake place in uh, Hayden Lake, Idaho, and so I was in the house by myself, and I turned it on because I was I was ecstatic about the the series coming on in the summer but uh now it's been moved up so i had my uh little sandwich uh grilled cheese and eating it and drinking my coke and watching it and it was fun because i knew everything that they were talking about and the series and everything and um i was kind of take taken by surprise when when ron came on in now time and said that he said uh to coach i got mj i got mj well you know, he was our best offensive player. So when I came into the game, we took him off of Michael so he could rest on defense and play offense. And that was just kind of the way it went. And obviously, he started the game on Michael. But every time I came in, I, I guarded him. So I can't even tell you, Harp's a great guy. I loved it. And my locker was next to him. I was between Mark Price and Ron Harper uh, in the locker room. So I had a great time. Uh, and Harp was a great teammate. But it shocked me that he said what he said, because I, I can honestly say that I did not hear him, or he, if he said it, he didn't say it to the five of us in the huddle uh, on the bench. Uh, he might have said it you know, when he was standing next to Coach Wilkins, but I, I did not hear him actually say that, and I'm not saying that he didn't, but... Uh, as far as, as what, uh, you know, Coach Wilkins uh, told us to do. It, it's kind of like what Mark Price said. You know, we just did what he told us to do, and we went out and did our best, and that's the way it went. And I got to tell you, though, Harp, uh, you know, idolized uh, MJ when he was a, a rookie, and he wanted to be just like Michael. And then, lo and behold, him and my uh, my other good friend, Steve Kerr, goes to the Bulls, and they win three championships with him. So. Uh, maybe when I was a free agent, I should have signed with the Bulls. <laughs>
0: have you and Ron talked since?
2: Since you No, called but, no, uh, okay. he, uh, I have not, and I don't like, uh, have his direct line and stuff, but I, I, I go back to Cleveland and see him at, at games. He, he has a house in, in Cleveland. And then here's the best thing about Hart. This guy came from Dayton, Ohio, and never owned a golf club in his life and then you know they're making us do all these charity things and so he's he's picking the game up but i don't know what his handicap is but he he's probably a three or a four handicap and i think uh once he got to chicago and hung out with michael and uh you know started playing golf he became a really good golfer so there's an event up here that coach Hugh has uh or used to have coaches versus cancer and ron comes up uh uh, to this area every summer. So I'll get, I'll get a chance to, to poke at him a little bit, uh, about it, but I'm sure we'll just have fun with it.
0: I got a couple more and I'll let you go. I've kept you too long, but I will say this. I saw this morning on Cleveland.com, they had a poll of whether or not Ron would have stopped MJ. When I looked at it this morning, it was more than 23,000 votes and 94% of the votes said no. So there you go. <laughs> There's the public, the court of public opinion, Craig.
2: Oh, uh, uh, well, Cleveland uh, sports fans are are very—they um, have a big heart. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that uh, they were feeling for me, so they voted uh, against me.
0: <laughs> when you meet somebody and tell them your name, how often does the shot come up?
2: Oh, uh, first thing. Uh, it, there's no. It, there's not even a hesitation. I meant. Before we even say hello or shake hands, or not now because of our social distancing, but uh, that, that's the first thing that gets brought up is like, uh, oh, man, you were in on the shot. You know, what was that like? So I have to uh, explain it uh, a lot. But, again, if I'm going to be associated uh, and, and with the NBA in any part of history, there's not a better person to be associated with uh, than MJ.
0: We all have a certain perspective on that shot and its lasting impact, its broader scope impact for Michael. I could personally consider it to be kind of a line of demarcation. I feel like there was Michael before that shot and then there was Michael after that shot. What is your perspective on the broader scope impact of that moment for Michael specifically?
2: Because of the stage, uh, that it was on uh, the first round of the playoffs, which when I played, it was five games. Uh, it was game five. Um, and, you know, he was huge in that series. I, I, I don't know what he averaged, but it had to be in the forties in that series. So the stage was set uh, for them because it was a Sunday afternoon game on CBS had Dick Stockton calling the game and, it was a great game. I don't think anybody who was watching it could get up and go to the bathroom or whatever, because it was always nip and tuck. So I think when he hits that game winner and the bulls move on, that it it was the start of their chase for those first three championships, um, with that team. Now, unfortunately, uh, Doug Collins didn't get to, to coach him Phil Jackson was his assistant and, and got that duty, but, um i i think it just it, it took the bulls to a whole uh new level and I, I, again they lost to the pistons uh, a couple of times and i love that uh, brendan malone uh talking about the jordan rules i don't know if you if uh, you've read the book but hearing him say it straight from the horse's mouth was was pretty cool uh the way that they were going to guard him but yeah, it, it did. It just propelled them to the next level. They kind of paid their dues against the Pistons. They win three championships. Michael goes off to play baseball, comes back, takes them to another three championships. So uh, I think that shot was very um, uh, important in in the evolution of the Bulls and, and Michael uh, being the best player.
0: I am so grateful, man. It's It's rare when – when someone is asked to discuss a moment like that, that they have the level of grace that you've had in sharing your thoughts and and memories and perspective on it. And so uh, it just means a lot to me, man. That's one of those moments in my – I'm a little younger than you. I was 13 when that happened. And when it – I just – I'll never – I was watching it live. I was a a Michael Jordan fanatic. And to – Just to have the grace that you have in in sharing those memories and those thoughts, dude. Y'all stay safe up there, and thank you so much. Y'all have a great day, brother.
2: You too. Thank you.
0: As I said off the top, it's hard for me as now 44-year-old Marty to rewind more than 30 years and be able to tell that little kid, be able to tell that young man who was so just addicted to everything that Michael Jordan did, just transfixed on his every move and studied everything about him and had all the literature and a a room wallpapered with him to tell that little little boy that he'd had the opportunity to interview Craig Elo someday about that moment I never would have believed it. And again, as I said earlier, how much grace does that guy have? What an unbelievable attitude.
1: That's oh, what, that's so what I took away, yeah. is just how awesome he is about it. And a lot of people could you know not want to talk about it, and that would be perfectly fine. And now he also joked that it's easier to get over it when Nike and other companies come call and say, hey, we'd like to use it. Will you accept this check? And it, it makes it a little easier to deal with. But uh, it's still amazing how welcoming it is to talk about it.
0: And every single person he meets, every time he sh- sticks out his hand, or used to, and says, hello, my name's Craig Elo. Oh, you're you're the shot. You're the guy. That I mean it will be with him until it'll probably be on his headstone one day. And I just appreciate the grace. And not only that, but but the meticulous way he's able to break down how that game unfolded. And I loved what he said. I loved the honesty. Not only about What happens to that Cleveland Cavaliers unit, which was stacked, if that shot bounces off and they win that game versus lose that game, we would have been NBA champions. That was his statement. I believe we would have been NBA champions. And I agree with him because they were loaded. And not only that, but I also appreciated his candor about what Ron Harper said. I appreciated. I loved how he said it. I'm not saying Ron Harper didn't say it. I'm saying I didn't hear him say it. And the clarification that when they were in the game together, Craig Elo was always on Michael Jordan so that Ron could get a breather on the defensive end. He wouldn't have to work so hard defending the greatest player of all time.
1: That would be unreal, you know, before going a, a game, you knowing that you're going to draw the best player on defense. like, And so you know going into it that MJ's the person that you're going to be having to defend. The team's looking upon you to step up.
0: And and being the guy who played the guy in practice. I mean, it was just fascinating to me. And that's not the only thing that's humbling. So is being able to call Derek Anderson a friend. DA and I go back because we have a mutual friend who – has helped manage Derek's life for a very long time, Tony Christensen, a brother to me who uh, lives in Louisville and is a great friend to Derek and a great friend to me, whom I met through Jimmy Johnson, the seven-time NASCAR champion. And when I went to Louisville to cover Muhammad Ali's Memorial Service week, I needed credibility going in. I knew that if I was going to do that assignment right, I had to have a story on which to hang my hat. And I called Tony, who is Mr. Louisville, and I said, is there any way that, what what can I do, what story can be done that can help me have a foundation on which to stand in this historic moment? And he said, I got just a guy. And he connected me with Derek and You will hear a story that I tell in a little while. I wanted to tell the story, which you may have heard me tell before. Travis certainly has. But I wanted to tell it with Derek on the line. What he does in the community there is unbelievable and inspires me every single day. Every time I talk to that man, I'm ready to take on the world and be a better man. And I'm not alone. He's had that impact on everybody from Shaquille O'Neal to Dwayne Wade to one of the greatest college basketball teams ever assembled in the 1996 Kentucky Wildcats. That's who Derek is. He's an alpha by example. And you're going to hear that in just a moment. But one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to Derek so badly is because there ain't a whole lot of men who've ever lived Who had their own Air Jordans. Who had Air Jordans that were specifically designed for them. And Derek is one of those people. And y'all know I'm a sneakerhead. You know I'm a Jordan guy. Have been. Will be. That'll never change. I got a closet full of
1: them. Do you know what your first Jordan was, Marty? Yes.
0: Yes. My very first Air Jordan was the original Jordan 5, which ironically... Nike just reissued, it's the white Jordan 5 that the inspiration for that shoe was actually World War II fighter planes. And it's the first shoe, it, ha- it had the metallic tongue, the reflector tongue, it had the, 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 the kind of um, pointy porcupine design on the outsole, it was white. It had the red Nike air on the back, the clear air pocket. And it came with the lace holder, that, that spring-loaded lace holder. It, it's just like I just, I, and I just bought them. And just so you know, uh, you don't know this yet. I was going to surprise you after the show, but uh, I just bought you a pair. They are going to show up at your house in the next few days. <laughs>
1: Of course you do. I appreciate that. I was wondering why you're texting uh, for my address again because um, a couple weeks ago, we're taping on a Saturday or now, a couple weeks ago on a Saturday, uh, you asked for my address and Jack Daniels was delivered. And so I was I was wondering what it was going to be, and I uh, greatly appreciate this.
0: Of course. Uh, so that was my very first pair, and it's the pair that it. they had the clear bottoms. On the the bottom of the shoe has a clear outsole and that clear outsole back in the day. I don't think this is the case anymore because I have several pairs of fives now that have that clear outsole back in the day, they would soil to a bronze color. So I wouldn't wear the shoes outside. I carried them to school and put them on when I got inside.
1: I'll add to your, how neurotic you are about your shoes for folks that may not know, you carry around a cleaning kit. Oh, yeah, Like I've, absolutely. I've gone in a, I've gone in your hotel room before and you're in the bathroom scrubbing your shoes. Like this is, this is who Marty is. I've seen McGee gently tap his shoe at the, uh, Indy 500 and Marty could no longer hold a conversation. You could see his mind was thinking about his shoe and not the conversation.
0: Well, that's one of those things. And, and I don't say this to be funny. I mean this. That's one of those that's one of those things that is in it's it's ingrained in me. It is it is so deep-seated within me to appreciate even having the opportunity to have those because my daddy was very generous to me. But he also had an amazing way of demanding of me that I learned how to appreciate things and my first pair, my second pair, first couple pairs of Jays he wouldn't buy them for me. He wouldn't pay a hundred plus dollars for a pair of sneakers. When I first wanted them, we didn't have that money. That didn't exist in our house. I had, I had food in my belly and a roof over my head and more love than I knew what to do with. And I had, I wanted for nothing. But the concept of having a shoe that cost that much, hell no. So that's still within me. So despite the fact that I now can get them, I've never lost the respect for the opportunity to have them. Well, that's that's the one thing you see me be so neurotic. I'm that way with my training shoes, dude. And I come home and clean
1: them. With with Jordans, if the people that respect them and hold them in such high esteem, like you, you're not alone in this idea of keeping them in the box, keeping them clean. It's. One, how you were raised, but also the respect and the value that sneakerheads have for these shoes. It's not just, you know, a pair of slip-on Vans that I would wear, you know, to go to the grocery store. These are – they mean something.
0: They mean a lot to me, and each pair means a lot to me. And I just – you know, again, coming from a situation where, you know, you kind of – you grow up in the country and and you just – the way that, that Michael Jordan inspired me is just impossible to detail. He was one of those people. He probably above everybody else. There's this there's this fraternity of guys like my country music heroes. Again, you know, like I'll I'll forever be blown away that I got to talk to Travis Tritt. I got to talk like I got to sit. Travis and I sat in a room with Travis Tritt, and he. He enjoyed talking about his career with us. Travis Tritt plays country music songs that helped me believe enough in myself that the fantastic dreams that I carried every day did not seem stupid. And I use the word stupid as the word. It wasn't stupid to me to be a big dreamer. And Travis Tritt's one of the reasons why. And Michael Jordan is absolutely one of the reasons why. And so those shoes are an extension of those dreams. As crazy as that might sound. And that's aside from the fact that they're the dopest shoes of all time. Aside the fact that that they are the. They are they look amazing with everything. I wear J's with my
1: suits. Well, that's, I was just going to say, I don't know when it started, but it is now common practice and accepted that to wear J's with just about anything. I mean, on TV with full suits, you'll see people wearing J's and it's just as acceptable as wearing dress shoes. And I think that's, what's so crazy about it is it's not a basketball shoe. It's a shoe. It can be worn with anything.
0: It's absolutely elite style. And, I ever you know it's it's become a thing now like with the the young men that I cover in college and uh, even when I'm doing one-off assignments in other sports people expect me what jays you got on today and I, I can't lie there is a very distinct pride in that for me personally it it's not like hey I'm cool it's not like i'm I, i'm posturing in any way because it's not that i just um I feel clean when I got on a pair of J's.
1: It, it gives you when you have a good pair of shoes on. It, it does give you that little bit of extra like confidence and just how you carry yourself because it, it's something about them.
0: Yeah, man, no question.
1: So we have your your first pair of shoe. I want you to give me your Mount Rushmore of Jordans.
0: This was uh, this was an assignment that Travis gave me, and it was very very difficult for me to pare down. My favorite Jays. but I've, I've managed to do it, I think, uh, as best I can. And he, Travis wanted my, my Mount Rushmore. I will give, I'm going to give my first out and then I'll give my Mount Rushmore. My first out in the Marty Smith's America Mount Rushmore of Air Jordans is the Space Jam 11s. The Space Jam 11s are all black with purple accents and that clear bottom, and they are clean, man. Uh, One of my favorite shoes of all time. I love it. Uh, I don't wear mine very often because I love them so much, but that's my first out. So that brings me to the top four. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the Marty Smith America top four, Mount Rushmore, Of Air Jordans. Number four, the Bread Ones. Classic look, clean. Uh, I love all of the Bread selections, the black and red shoes that have been distributed, whether that's the Bread Fours, which I love uh, as well. But the Bread Ones are number four for me. And that brings us to number three, which is the Bread eleven. The Bread 11, I have often said, is the greatest shoe of all time. But as I dove real deep into this, I've actually got the Bread 11 at number three. It almost circumvented number two to get to two, but I have it at three. I bought Cameron, my my 14-year-old son, a pair of Bread 11s for Christmas. And when he put them on on Christmas morning, I asked him how they felt. And he said, Daddy, I feel like a god. Number two is the Katrina 3. You will hear more about the Katrina 3 when we get to DA because that's actually one of DA's PEs, which is the player exclusive. Uh, P, that's what PE means. And the players that are that have their own shoes, uh, that's what those are. And Derek will explain the Katrina 3s later. I have a pair in my closet right now. I have worn those many times. And every time that I have them on, people just stop what they're doing, and they ask me about the shoe. It's the white three with the red accent and the gray kind of concrete-looking accents as well in the outsole, Uh, one of the greatest shoes of all time. That's number two for me, Katrina Threes. And the number one Air Jordan of all time I do not own, I have never owned, and I have spent years trying to get them, but I won't spend what they cost on the secondary market, on StockX, etc. That is the North Carolina ones. The Carolina ones are my favorite Jordan ever. And someday I'm going to have a pair. I will someday come off the hip and get them. I have not done that yet. Uh, I love that shoe. I mean, I love that shoe. They came out recently last year, They came out with a women's version of a kind of like a Carolina one. There was a really deep navy and Carolina blue and white that was patent leather. And it's like, it is so sick. It's unbelievable. I tried to get a pair of those, but I couldn't get them in my size, which is a men's 11. I couldn't get them. Um, I was doing an interview with Michael Rappaport, the actor. Uh, at the NBA All-Star Game last year here in Charlotte. He and I went to a coffee shop in downtown Charlotte, and there was a young lady in there who had him on. And in the middle of the interview, I saw them, and I said, Michael, hold on a minute. And I walked over to that young lady, and I'm like, I am so jealous of you. And she goes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is the that is the Marty Smith America, uh, Mount Rushmore of Jays, bread ones, Bread Elevens, Katrina Threes, and Carolina Ones. I am a Ones, Threes, Fours, and Elevens guy. I have a couple pair of Nines as well, which you'll hear Da get into the Nines here during this interview. Um, but that's just uh, that's that's as, that's as great as I can do. I wanted my list to be shoes that I personally owned. And so I almost left the Carolina Ones out and threw the Space Jam 11s in, but nah, if you want my Mount Rushmore, Carolina Ones are the George Washington of my Jays Mount Rushmore.
1: The um, When I was growing up in high school, the uh, 13s, all black with the red at the bottom, were like the popular ones that a lot of the basketball players, those were the ones that everyone was wearing at the time. And so I'm, I, I kind of like those.
0: I have a few different pairs from other years, but – of my daily, if you see me in an airport, I'm probably going to be wearing one of those four. I'm probably either going to be wearing ones, threes, fours, or elevens, or I have on Air Max 90s, which I also have entirely too many pairs of those. I want to say one thing, which I had not even considered. I had not even considered bringing up. I wonder if I should wait until after Derek to to have this to to discuss this i'm going to do that after we hear from derek i'm going to discuss one more thing about my appreciation for air jordans that deals with a friend of mine who passed away late last year and our mutual appreciation for a certain shoe in the jordan regime before i get to that I, i want to uh I just want to thank Derek again. Y'all are going to love this interview. Uh, it's very insightful about Michael Jordan, the businessman, what it's like to be chosen by the by the greatest player of all time, and Derek's amazing work in the community in Louisville, Kentucky. Here is 1996 NCAA champion and 2006 NBA champion, Derek Anderson. All right, we're going to get started with... I want you to walk me through how you were chosen to be a brand Jordan athlete.
3: It's crazy um, because I went to Nike thinking I was meeting with Nike. And the ironic part about it, um, when I got there, I walked into the office. They told me to sit down, you know, they'll be out with you in a minute. I get up, my, my Uncle George and I, and I see Phil Knight walks out. And I'm like, man, where have I known this guy from? And he comes, he said, hey, I'm Phil Knight, nice to meet you, pleasure to meet you. You know, I hope everything uh, works with you, and I look forward to speaking with you again, hopefully soon. So I go in a meeting, and it's Michael Jordan, and there's another person there, representative. And they had just come out of the meeting of saying Jordan Brand is going to be part of the Nike brand. So I literally got there the day that they said they were going to start doing the Jordan Brand. How crazy is that? That is crazy.
0: What was that initial meeting with Michael like? How did he broach it with you?
3: Well, he, he, of course, I walked in, he says, hey, D.A., and, of course, everybody in the world thinks, you know, as a kid's college kid, you think there's no way he knows who I am. And he says, hey, D.A., and I'm just like, hey, Mike. Like, I didn't know what to call him. Like, Mr. Jordan, like, <laughs> I was
2: just sick.
3: So I'm just like, uh, I'm like, I'm good. How are you, Mr. Jordan? Or whatever I said to him, I can't remember. I was so nervous, man. I was sweating. And when he, uh, he asked, he said, how your knees feeling? I'm like, oh, I'm better, man. I'm good. I've been still rehabbing. He said, I know. And he said, I've had some guys check you out and make sure you're on time, work, and he said, I've I've really watched and researched you, man. i watched you play, but I've I've heard you, you're you a good person and you work out, you're not lazy, you get there on time, and uh, just I'm just appreciative of that. And I said, like, then he asked me a few basketball things, and he said, well, listen, how would you like to be one of the first guys that represent my shoe company? And I'm looking like – and I, I made a joke, and I said – it was the name of the company. I said I would be honored this and that, but then I made a joke. I said, what's the – What's the name of the company? And he said, you know, Jumpman. And I said, you do know I tore both ACLs, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I know, I know. I'm cool with that. I know. I've seen you work out and I've seen you rehab. And, and I, I think you'd be a good fit for my brand. And I think you represent me well. And it was literally one of those moments where you're just like, like all the injuries I've ever had at the worst times, seeing you're averaging 20 points, it all like went out the window because he gave me another opportunity. So that moment was, like, surreal. I literally walked on campus when he had made that decision. So to me, it was like like being one of the first guys he even had or thought about was uh, was significant. And um, it built a great relationship for us uh, because I was one of those guys that he, he knew how I was as a person first.
0: You might have tore both ACLs, but there were very few guys that had bounce like you had. We'll get into that after a while. <laughs> of course, first, you know, you, you kind of note, what that moment was like, that moment of him believing in you and championing you was, how would you describe or define Michael's influence on your career and life, for that matter?
3: Uh, well, I think for career, it was basically just given a role model. Like, I was a six-five point guard as a sophomore in high school, and I could dribble. I wasn't one of those guys just kind of walking down. I could dribble. I could shoot. Uh, I was really unselfish my whole career. But then I could score it almost at will because I knew the game mentally and it was all from like watching him on WGN like you know we like you would go to somebody else's house and be like wow this guy's like that's who you you saw uh, Steve Smith was another guy who I modeled my game after because he he was smart he moved at his own speed so those two guys I kind of always just watched if I knew those two guys were on somebody said I was going to watch them so my career was basically copycatting him and Steve Smith. And as I got become more athletic, I just tried – because my hands are really small, but I used to try to do all his dunks on small goals, and therefore when I got to the bigger goals, I could do them. So his 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 image, him, the way he played with footwork and IQ is everything that I just modeled. Like I didn't watch anybody else. I love Magic, but I just watched those two guys and Jordan all the time. Like that was it. Like there was – like if I'm watching them play a game, the other team goes the other end, I just watched him the whole time on defense. Like if he beat, if if he was help defense, I watched him. If he's feeling, he go down the other end while Scotty's bringing the ball up, I'm watching Mike on the other side. Like, it was just stuck on him because I wanted to see how he learned the game that way. So career-wise was just um patterning my game, myself after his game. And uh, as far as life, I think he gave me so much hope. Like, my rookie year, he would call and check on me. Like, I'm thinking, like, you know, wasn't no texting back then. So it was like, call, and it says, you know, Michael Jordan, I'm like, He's got to be butt out. Like, there's no way he's calling me. He says, hey. He says, hey, Rook, how you doing, man? I'm just checking on you. I'm like, oh, I'm good, man. Just getting some rest, ready to play. This is before we even play the first game. And he said, all right, well, just stay focused, man. You know, I, I look forward to seeing you when I get in town. I'm in town, hit you up, check you out All-Star Weekend. I'm going. He said, hey, Rook, you good? Y- y'all going out? Y- where y'all going? Like, he's having a conversation with me like like me and him hung out together. Like, we grew up or something. And I was like, yo, this dude is, like, incredible." And that's when the next time we had a conversation after the lockout, I knew what I needed to do. I called him and asked him, could I open up uh, the Jordan shoe store? And he said, yeah, just do the paperwork and you have my blessing. And I opened up the first Jordan shoe store. Like, so for me, it was like his relationship, me and I, it's been connected off of personalities more than it has sports.
0: Why was that important for you to open that store? Where is it and how did you, how did you come to have that idea or that concept?
3: Well, I knew growing up. A lot of people know I grew up. I was wearing the wrong size shoes. I didn't have shoes. I was wearing other people's shoes. It was a funny story. My freshman year, I had like school shoes, and I didn't have like basketball shoes. So I was asking some guys in 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 the gym, Hey man, what size shoe you wear? What size shoe? These are guys who didn't know like people in the stands, and I was asking guys, and they were like, Why? And I finally I found a guy. He had some purple and black Air Maxes. <laughs> he wore my shoe size and I said, Hey man, let me switch shoes with you just for this just for the game. It took me like fifteen minutes. I'm up there scrambling too, because I really I didn't I didn't realize I was like gonna get in the game really. But and I was like, Okay, I was a freshman in his first game and, and he said, Hey man, we got guys hurry six, are you gonna play? You you're gonna get in? And I'm like, Oh my god <laughs> So I had to go get it, wear some guys' shoes from the stands and because I knew I didn't have shoes growing up. I didn't want another kid to be in that situation. So I was like, how can I get shoes? And I got a free Jordan contract, so I get all amount of shoes, whatever. I wanted to open up shoe store and then, like, literally pay for kids' shoes from my neighborhood. I opened up in the west end of Louisville, Kentucky, which is, you know, considerably low poverty um, from the standpoint. But we don't need a lot of money to make us happy. But I wanted to give that opportunity. I put it in smack dead in the middle of the hood, like just making sure everybody could get to it. Uh, we had Midnight Madness sales free picnics, the kids come out, get free clothes for everything, and, and it was all because he like, gave me an opportunity to open that shoe store.
0: It's amazing what you've done uh philanthropically and given back to your community. I've actually had the blessing of seeing it myself during the week <laughs> of Muhammad Ali's memorial service in Louisville. I spent some time with Derek and he took me around his neighborhood and it's amazing guys to watch people flock to Derek. He is a light in that community. And one thing that blew my mind was, I don't know how many times a year you do it. I think it might be once. It might be more. Y'all, he brings 18-wheelers into the hood, mm-hmm. and they're full of Jordans. Yeah. These, these these trucks are full you all of And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what is the response from the community when that
3: happens? Well, I think people have grown used to me doing that, and they're so, like, appreciative. It's like they come up and people give you hugs, they cry, but now they, they consider me like family. They'll, they'll get some shoes and parents like women or parents will be like, Hey, you need something to eat? They'll bring me food, they bring my favorite desserts. Like they'll just be giving me stuff and it's like it's really cool, but it's like we're a big family now. They consider me like a family member. And it's like it's cool, man. It's like you don't you don't ask for anything except just helping. Like that doesn't cost a dime to be kind. And if I have something that could give you to motivate you and to help your son get out of a situation or you to get out of Whatever it may be, it's a, it's a, it's the love factor that heals. People think money and success, no. If you get love from people, you feel like you can get up the next day and smile. That motivates you to do something better. So the people come up to me, it's like, i like walk in the neighborhood now and you see it. People come up to me, take pictures, but they're like they're not like dying to see me because it's not like like you don't see me, but once every yeah, 10 years. Yeah, you're very visible, right. Yes, so they're like, man, they, they'll have a conversation and they'll be like, man, I can't believe I'm talking. You know, the famous quote my wife found out is, that's DDA, DA, like the, the only DDA, the like they be asking that question. It's like, don't look at me as DA, look at me as Derek. I'm from Louisville, I'm from here, I grew up here, like this is it. So I grew, I've built a relationship with people personally, and it's not my status, it's who I am as a person.
0: One of the most awesome aspects of DA's alliance with Jordan is his series of PEs, which for those of you who aren't sneakerheads, that means player exclusive Jordan's. <laughs> i had i gave him a heads up because i needed him to be ready what are oh, your yeah. five favorite pe's during your time with the brand
3: in order uh or years like in order my first or you want to wait till the last to tell you my best
0: i want you to go five to one
3: gotcha all right the fifth one are my uh loyal ones and they're the thirteens, the red and white
1: mm-hmm. those
3: are like one of my best shoes. They're comfortable. They're a great fit. Um, they're just perfect. Uh, my fourth shoe is the uh, Jordan 9. I cut them, made them mid-cut. They were like my playoff shoe. They were like great. The Jordan Nines. they were black and white. They had a uh, DA1 on the back of them. Uh, they were super smooth. Uh, my third ones are the Air Jordan 3s. I retroed them. Uh, you remember her, uh, Katrina, I did that.
0: Katrina, I have them in the Houston. closet over here, yep.
3: <laughs> yeah, I did that, and Katrina did a relief fund to SOS, uh, and it was uh, Save Our uh, Survivors, and that was because of Houston. I was in Houston, and a lot of people got displaced from New Orleans to Houston, so I had free food. I had places to stay. I was paying for hotel rooms for, like, two weeks. Like, it was just a lot, but people just needed an opportunity, so I had the Hurricane Katrina's come out then, and I uh, wasn't giving a lot of shoes out then because people were worried about food. But uh, we did that at that time. And my number twos, my number two favorite shoe is the championship uh, 305, the loyalty um, yep. red and white fours. They got loyal one on them. They got 305. They got the city of Miami and gray, uh, or graffiti on the side of them. They're super sweet. This is after we we uh, won a championship at our Miami Heat in 06. But man, they gave me these, and Fat Joe's got a pair of them. He loves them. He won't never break them out. <laughs> Uh I got a pair of those and a black pair as well. But the, those are it. And uh, my top shoe of all time is my low cut patent leather uh, 11s. Um, those the Concord lows. The Concord lows. They I have to be. They're my that.
0: favorite too, man.
3: Yes, they are I'm my so favorite. I cut those lows. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes sir I mean those are the sickest Look man uh, yep. I'm one of those people You know this about me I'm one of those people that has the addiction And the Concord <laughs> 11 Lows Are the sickest of the sick They are yeah. the goat of The goat's shoes Period
3: And that's, that was my what? first shoe I got the oh. cut The rest of them were kind of like eh. but That's the first shoe he let me like make a low cut into
0: Yeah I noticed that All of your P.E.s were low tops Why?
3: Uh, I played in my Air Max and I had a great game. <laughs> <There> you, <laughs> it all goes back to the start. Goes, it, it always goes back to the start, man. I played my butt off in those things. They were they were Air Maxes low cuts, and I was just out there hooping. I'm like, man, I can do this in low cuts. I don't need no high tops. And after that, <laughs> I was low cut up. I could put on a pair of three quarters, be okay. But high tops, no. I'm not doing high tops ever. What influence did you have on the
0: colorways or designs of your PEs?
3: Uh, in the beginning, it was basically just your team color. So I had some sky blue, Cleveland when we were sky blue my rookie year. Um, when I go with other places, I was I was designing colors to fit. But when I was with the uh, who was I with um, Portland, I got to mix and match a lot more. I was in Oregon, of course. I got to mix and match, kind of see stuff. I got to mix and match a little bit different. I started putting stuff together, like some uh, different low cuts from different styles, the D-Loyals and all that stuff. So it was pretty unique. It wasn't as fluorescent as they were because, you know, we were trying to match clothes to shoes, and you can't have six colors trying to match clothes back then. We weren't that sophisticated. <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of a lot of input. They gave us a little input uh, just on what you, you thought. What like we were going to, like, hey, I want a pair of purple ones. They're going to say, okay, here it is. No. You got some input on how you saw it, how you thought. Like Tinker, we were sitting in the office with Tinker and Jordan sometimes, and then some people would be at a table. Of course, when he retired, we had more time, but we we uh, we we had to say a little bit. They still had what they were going to do, but I think just that little input made us feel like we had something to say to it.
0: When you're in a meeting like that with Tinker Hatfield and and Michael Jordan, what, what do you see from Michael as a
3: businessman? Uh, I think he asked questions about like what, ju- like what. Ju- uh, graphic people would like these, like what's the style, what's trending. Like people would come and say that thing. And Tigger's big thing was he was always strategic on how he listened to people. Like he knew I was loyal, one on my shoes, so he did a shoe called Be Loyal. Like he was really receptive and open and could really study how people saw things. Like Ray Allen's shoes, like he knew his he was a shooter, so he knew to do some shooting stars in his shoes. Like Tinker was really, really observant to what we were saying. And I think Jordan was more you know, making sure he hit the mainstream market right. Um, I signed with No Limit as a marketing team one time for a couple of years, well, a few months, and we did a George shoe called uh, D.A. The Soldier, like D.A. Soldier, and it was a pretty cool shoe, but it was like a lot of people weren't wearing that type of shoe with No Limit. It was more clothing than shoes. So it was like he kind of figured out, you know what, this may not be the part of generation. Like now everybody's in the rap, but back then a rapper having a basketball shoe really wasn't it. So, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that they were very observant of what the generation and how everybody was moving around in the country. They was very observant about that. A few minutes ago
0: you were talking about your knee injuries and, and the torn knee ligaments and whatnot. After you tore that one your last year at Kentucky, what concern did you have about your NBA future?
3: What's funny is I never thought about the NBA. Like, I don't know a lot of people know my story, but when I was homeless at 11, man, last thing I thought about was the NBA. First thing I thought about was going to college, getting a degree, and getting a good job and getting me a little, you know, 1,500 square foot uh, foot home just living and growing with me and my son. Like, I never dreamed of the NBA. Like, when I even was watching Jordan, it was to see I can be the best player. I never thought that I could get to the NBA when I was in high school. I was too worried about getting my next meal. So I was like, you know what, I'm watching Jordan. So when I go back, I can beat somebody who's better than me in high school. And then my job was, hey, if I can get a scholarship somewhere, you know, I'm thinking somewhere local. <laughs> I'm thinking like I can get a you know, college scholarship this. And as I got older, people started talking about the NBA, but it was never my dream about the NBA. So to see it happen, you know, it was just one of those surreal things. It just, you just appreciate it. Like I never dreamed of it. So my, I had no pressure when I tore my ACLs. I was like, oh, well, like, let me get my degree and go get a job. <laughs> if somebody calls me, they call me. If they don't, they don't.
0: It's amazing the perspective that you have. For, for those of you guys a lot. who don't know Derek's story, this is a dude who at 10, 11 years old was sleeping on the picnic table out at the playground. Yes. This is a guy who, on his own accord, sat outside the grocery store and asked patrons if he could carry their groceries to the car for whatever change they had left over. From their grocery bill. Well, I, mean,
3: I had two jobs at 12 and 13.
0: It's just remarkable, Derek. It's just remarkable to me. And called survival.
3: I know. <laughs> it's called There's survival. There's just not many and people. Think about who, it. In the 80s, a lot of people had to live like that, but a lot of people quit. A lot of people went in a different direction. I wasn't the only one. It was other kids up there doing what I was doing. But guess what? They got tired of doing that. They went to do something wrong. I just, Why didn't I just you get tired of I knew I couldn't. There was no way I was going to do this stuff. I had seen my mother and father do the worst things in life, and there was no way I was going to sell drugs. There was no way I was going to steal from somebody. There was no way I was going to drink or smoke ever in my life. I saw what it did to my family. I literally I bought it from 10 to 11 years old, saw it, crush my family. Come home to an empty apartment. Don't see your parents for 20 years. That's all I needed to see. I didn't need to see anything else. For me, it was don't drink, don't smoke, which I've never done, and I'm 46. And just stay focused on working hard. It doesn't matter how much money I have. It matters about making sure that I do the right things every day for me and my family. And if I can help someone else out, that's what I'll do. That's a beautiful life. It's peaceful. It's calm. And you're doing something that God has blessed you with, which is to help other people. Very simple, but a lot of people don't see it that way.
0: Now, it's simple, but it takes a very unique self-confidence and self-awareness that Mm – I admire very much, and you just don't see very often, especially in today's world with social media and everybody being so focused on selfies and bullshit yeah, like that. Yeah. And so yeah, it's a
3: different generation.
0: It's it's a very different different generation right now.
3: Yeah. Before absolutely. I
0: get you out of here, man, I, I want to talk about the '96 Wildcats and the '06 Heat. All right, that '96 mm-hmm. Kentucky Wildcats team was ridiculous. Nine, yeah. nine future pros on that team. Yep. That, I mean, how, how do you describe that team's potency?
3: You should have saw practice.
0: <laughs> oh, I,
3: put me there. What was practice like? Yeah. This is what a, this is what a general manager said one time to, and he told me later. I won't tell who it was, but he said we went to practice, and you know, one of the coaches asked him like, you know, who do you think, who would you pick out there, you know, if you had the first pick. And he, he said he closed his eyes and just pointed to the court. <laughs> he, said, he said, give me any of them. He said, just give me one of them. They play hard, they play smart, and they play together. He said, you can't lose that way with players like that. You know, and I was like, he was right. Like, we absolutely played hard. When I tell you it was like some of the hardest battles you ever want to see, it was six McDonald's All-Americans practicing against each other. Two of them had me and Mark Pope transferred in, so you had juniors. And you got all these guys just trying to play to get, like, 15 minutes. We weren't trying to get 20 points. We were trying to get minutes. And it was like that. Like, you, I don't know if you remember, we scored 86 points at halftime at LSU. Now, mind you, it's a 20-minute half. We had 86 <laughs> points at halftime. Go look it up. All these people who listen, look up LSU versus Kentucky in 1995 in and 96 season, and you will see the score is 86 to, like, 40 at halftime. If you want to believe how good a team is, tell me somebody, what other teams and everybody scored. Eleven guys uh, of twelve eleven or twelve guys scored in the first half. We were a different team, man. We were and we cared about each other. Like, like we just we went bowling thirteen deep. We went to the movies thirteen deep. My girlfriend would be like, Y'all can't do that. Like, yeah, we're going, we're going to the team. We see y'all tomorrow. Like we just were so passionate about making sure we stayed connected. It just meant a lot more to me then. What what was your role in that? Uh, I was always kind of the ringleader. I was always kind of the yeah. folks. Like, I was new and I was older, so they kind of knew. I was a junior. I could have been a senior because I transferred from Ohio State. Um, but uh, I just always tried to have fun. Like, I would throw the ball at the backboard, and they were like, man, Coach Dino going to get on you. He never said a word. You know, it's like, y'all not having fun. Like, I always did. Uh, people tell you, I brought energy to the team, and it was more fun. So, you, you know, I think we had a good time because I brought that, that positive, fun energy to this team.
0: Same thing could probably be said about that 2006 Miami Heat team. That was an interesting roster, too. Shaq, Wade, Zoe, White Chocolate, The Glove, Antoine Walker. I mean, you look at yeah. that roster, it's like, what? Why did that yeah. collection of players ultimately win the title? Well,
3: we were we went business because you think about it. Everybody on that team had already sacrificed. I've been in the league nine years. Gary Payton been in for like 14, Zoe low, low 15 like, everybody had been in the league years, so nobody had the ego of, why aren't you doing this? Like, Gary Payton was passing up shots to get me shots. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he was like, guys, white chocolate. he wasn't trying to be too fancy. He was making a perfect pass instead of a, a, a no-look pass. Like, guys had just said, you know what, I'm trying to win. Like, we, we, we were all veteran guys, most of us, and Dwayne was a young guy with all the energy. Like, he wasn't shooting as much as we wanted him to shoot until we said, you know what, we need you to carry us. And then he turned it on because we, we realized I got guys that believe in me. He doesn't have a guy on the you know saying, "Oh man, I ain't playing if Dwayne ain't gonna pass it." He didn't have the drama of that. He didn't have who's gonna take the last shot. Everybody in the gym knew if he had the ball, he's shooting, and if he didn't, I was ready to catch the ball. And you know that was a, that was a unique situation. He got into it where guys accepted their roles, and and it was unique, man, because again, we all wanted to win. Nobody cared about a contract. Nobody cared about minutes or shooting. We wanted to win and we all did what we could do to win. That's what made us unique. We took care of business from the standpoint of mentally and unselfishly take care of business.
0: What's it like being in a locker room with
3: Shaquille O'Neal? You're comedy. I mean, comedy. (laughs) Like for him to not smile on the court, he does everything silly in the locker room. Like he's, he's never serious in a locker room too. We're about to like read the scouting report. Like never. Like if you're in a meeting, he's, he's sniffing his feet, taking shocks off, putting it on UD, <laughs> putting it on somebody's shoulder. He's like, come on, man, really? Like dude, like, like the news people come in, he'll streak across the floor. Like dude, dude is like pure comedy. Like that dude, he made the room. He made locker room fun. Like if your best player can have this much fun, what are you doing? You know? So he, he made it fun. man. dude is hilarious. Dude is, Pure comedy. But then when he gets on the court, I ain't seen, I, I don't think I've ever seen him smile when he's on the court. I, I don't think I've ever seen the him. lines, baby. Oh, yeah, he's a different animal in between them lines. Give him in that locker room, though. He's a different fool. <laughs> I'll
0: get you out of here on this. Despite all the amazing success that you've had in your career, I would say that you believe your most important work has come after retirement with – everything you're doing uh, doing with stamina and A-OK. Explain the stamina movement to my listeners.
3: Oh, yeah, that's definitely been my greatest thing. I've never had this much joy and, and peace and, and and just excitement. But Stamina Foundation is what we're doing is teaching kids life skills, common courtesy, people skills. So if I had $100, I could find a way of surviving off $50 and be happy. I could be okay with being happy. Our generation are so stuck on trying to get on social media that they don't, ha- they don't know the real meaning of happiness. So my foundation is we give them a place to come. We walk through it. We have each other open doors to each other, take food, for each. I mean, feed, uh, feed each other, uh, get something for someone, help someone else out with something, teach them how to even coach basketball. We're teaching them to lead, not to follow social media, not to be a follower, but you listen, you learn, and you lead. So our foundation, man, is based on real-life stuff. Not none of that, not nothing wrong with school. You need education. But as soon as that education is over, what do you need? Common sense, common courtesy for good people. And that's all we focus on. My foundation does that every day. If we can, if not, well, I've sent 28 kids to college, kids who are getting out of college. I've placed 39 of them now with jobs who come out of college by teaching them job training. You can't walk into a job without a good attitude. They're going to look at you. Do I like you? What separates you from another person with the same education? It's your attitude. It's your your people skills. Do I like this person to hire? Them? So I've helped kids grow up, young young adults as well, and that's what I love to do. So anytime I reach with someone, that's what I focus in is to make them better people. Once we get better people, the world will be better.
0: It's a beautiful testimony, man. And I'll tell you before before you hop off, I want to tell this story with you on, guys. Went going back to that week of Muhammad Ali's memorial service in Louisville, uh, D.A. and I spent a day together and we went to Muhammad Ali's childhood home, the Pink House. Mm -hmm. And we're standing out there and having a chat and there's probably what, D.A., two, three hundred people out there paying off? At least. Yeah, Yeah, at at least least two, three hundred people and they're laying flowers down at the the door of the home, signs, balloons, uh, just taking their time to to respect this man who had such an amazing global impact in so many different ways. And this gentleman walks over to us and says, hello, older gentleman, and asks Derek to take a picture. And so I take the gentleman's phone and I take the picture of Derek and the gentleman. He was probably in his 70s. And after I take the picture, Derek goes over to a a gaggle of people who were also hoping to get Derek's photo And I'm just kind of standing there watching this gentleman fumble around with his phone a little bit. And I walked over and I said, sir, do you need any help? And he goes, help me find that picture. So I pull the picture up on the gentleman's phone and he just kind of stands there and stares at it. And I said, sir, what is that picture? And he said, young man, before Muhammad could no longer speak, he was always our voice. And even when he could no longer speak, he was still our voice. And the gentleman turns and points at Derek in that gaggle of all those people, and he said, "Now that's our voice." Yeah,
2: that it still powerful. gives me so, the chills.
0: Like even to this day, when I tell that story, it still gives me the chills. It was a
1: an amazing moment
0: of clarity for me about the impact that you do in your community, brother. I admire you so much.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's that's that was one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. Uh, it was good to hear, man. It was good to know that God's blessed me with a position and I'm actually using the position that I have to do to do the right things. Nobody's perfect, but doing the right things by God and by our community means you're doing the best you can and do all you can while you can. So I, it was one of the powerful things and I can't thank you enough, man, for even doing that stuff. It matters and my kids will have a legacy that their dad did the right things and hopefully they'll they'll continue to do the right things in the future.
0: You're a legend, brother. Thank you for your time. Y'all stay safe.
3: Yes, sir. You too, brother.
0: Much love. Wow. As I stated earlier, my admiration for Derek as a person cannot be overstated. I am so grateful for his friendship and his mentorship and the perspective that he's given me as a man. And I want you to know that moment I just described, again, I wanted him to be on, still on our interview when I told that story. That's one of the moments that is seared within me from this amazing journey I've been on with ESPN. To see that gentleman stare at that photograph with tears in his eyes and turn and point at Derek and say, that's our voice. I waited. I held on to that story for a couple of days. We did that story with Derek early in the week of Ali's memorial service week in Louisville. And the day of the service, the morning of the service, I was on Sports Center outside of the Ali Center there in Louisville, Kentucky. And I told that story at that moment. And I could barely get through it without crying myself. And as I said there with D.A. on the line, every every time I tell it now, I get chills.
1: I've heard you tell that story probably half a dozen times now. And when you were taping the interview, I... I still get chills hearing that, but the, my biggest takeaway was I didn't know a whole lot about Da, but hearing him talk about being homeless at eleven and like his his dream wasn't to be Michael Jordan or playing in the NBA, it was just to make something of himself. Like I can't imagine at that age going through that. I mean, I can't imagine doing that right now at thirty two, let alone at eleven.
0: That's why I won't. That's why, as a father, that's one of those reasons as a father when when my kids get a little pissy. I won't tolerate that. My kids want for nothing; they have everything. Above all, they have love, and they know deep within them that they are loved. And it's got stories like Derek's, and the unbelievable grace that he carries within that story, and the pride that he carries of being someone who had that vision so early on. Let me let me let me just expound upon the story real quick, Derek. As I stated there uh, earlier in, in the interview with him, Derek would sit outside of the grocery store and wait on customers to come out of the grocery store, ask them, hi, I don't want anything from you. I would love to do you a service. May I carry help you carry your groceries to the car for the change you have left over? And let me tell you what Derek would do. Derek would, at the end of his shift, let's call it a shift, at the end of his, when he got enough money, When there was enough jangle in his pocket to walk into that grocery store, do you know what he would do, Travis? He would buy a pack of hot dogs, and then he'd walk out of that store and eat them raw, right out of the package.
1: It's unbelievable. That's
0: why. That's why I won't tolerate. Like, I I struggle so much, man. I struggle so much with the look at me society we live in. When you got guys like that, man. And, you know, I, I am so grateful for this job, and I say it all the time. And I'm reminded, I see, like, I see these guys who are putting down this pavement and these truckers who are going across, the, like, like I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for Derek's perspective. I'm very grateful for his perspective. And guys who do manual labor, back-breaking work every day, whether it's, you know, guys who are, putting mulch in a yard or guys who are who have lawn services or guys who are, are, are laying the asphalt outside and, and doing our roads or folks who are picking berries or folks who are, and, and, you know, like there are folks who are working their asses off for a living. And I'm grateful for every one of them. And it's, it's you know, stories like Derek that are reminders of that. I didn't – I mean, he he said it right there. I didn't aspire to play in the NBA, so those torn ACLs didn't break my heart. I wanted to have a 1,500-square-foot home, a wife and some kids, and be able to pay for it all, have a good job, and be an educated man. It's amazing. What tremendous perspective. And before we get out of here, all right, um, I want to remind you guys the reason that Travis and I did this pod. By the way, Travis just happened to have Craig Elo's cell number.
1: I forgot I had it. I produced the show. Uh, we had we have the NBA Finals on radio, and I produced the show after the Cavs won. And so I'd reached out to him the day before saying, you know, if the Cavs win, would you be willing to come on and talk about it? And he, of course he said yes. The kicker was, and I didn't realize this until afterwards he was in Hawaii on a wedding anniversary and he still took the time out of that to come on and talk to us. And so I and, totally forgot I had his number
0: and be that kind. And, and like his spirit, man, what great spirit and the same for Derek. So we're grateful to both of those guys for coming on. And I the reason we did this podcast this way is because of Michael. It's because of the last dance. We're in this moment right now where our 10 part documentary The -the behind-the-scenes look at the 90s Chicago Bulls dynasty is all the rage. It's what everybody's talking about, and we're hanging on every word. All of us are. Everybody who loves sport can't get enough of this. And it continues this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. It'll be episodes 5 and 6, which I hear are the best yet by the people who have seen it. And afterwards, make sure you listen to the wrap-up podcast hosted by Jalen and Jacoby immediately following the broadcast of The Last Dance that's presented by State Farm. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Coverage is also brought to you by AT&T. It's available wherever you enjoy your podcasts, along with Marty Smith's America. I'm doing this series of features now called Sidelines to Frontlines. You guys may have seen the first installment on former Auburn punter Cody Bliss. Unbelievable perspective it's given me on what the coronavirus pandemic really is. And I hope you guys get to see those. Uh, I have four more currently in production. So they will be rolled out here over the coming weeks. And I'm so grateful to the people who are on the front lines, man. Man, it is. Hearing the stories of what they're managing every day has jerked a, has just jerked a knot in me. It has reminded me. That staying home is the right thing, and living this quarantine is the way that we have to operate right now. Uh, I'm thrilled that NASCAR has announced it's coming back here in the next couple of weeks at Darlington and Charlotte. Can't wait to see that. Uh, but again, doing these doing these sidelines to front lines pieces, remind me again, thank you to our doctors, thank you to our nurses. Thank you to our first responders and our law enforcement officials, our policemen and women, our firemen. Always, I'm so grateful for our military. Thank you to the truckers running up and down the road making sure our goods are at the grocery stores. Thank you to the grocery store workers. And, you know, somebody wrote wrote us a note this week that I wanted to mention. I I always ask for feedback. We want your feedback. We're getting it. And it fills up my tank, guys. Travis's too. I screen grab every one of them that I see and send them to Travis. Somebody asked me this week to please thank the funeral service workers, the people at the funeral homes, because they're overwhelmed too. And amen. Grateful for you guys and all that you're managing right now. Um, before we get out of here this week, uh, I, I was just while we were talking about my Mount Rushmore of Air Jordans earlier, it made me think of Ed Ashoff. It made me think of our brother, uh, someone that I deeply admired and was a light in the world and had a smile that lit up the world, uh, whom we lost on Christmas Eve. Uh, Ed got very sick and and we lost him. And one of the most beautiful part of our friendship was our mutual appreciation for Air Jordans. And... I happened to get a pair of Raptor 4s, I forget when it was, a uh, year, year and a half ago, something like that, and I wore them to interview Felipe Franks, the former Florida quarterback who has now since transferred to Arkansas, and I took a picture with Felipe and put it on Instagram last summer. And Ed sent me a note. He's like, oh, my gosh, you got the Raptor 4s. Ed was a massive, massive Toronto Raptors fan. He's like, I've been trying to get those things, man. And I wanted so desperately to get Ed a pair of 4s, a Raptor 4s. And that made me think of him uh, just doing that Mount Rushmore. And every time I wear those Raptor 4s scents, I laugh with Ed. I think of him. And I high-five him, and I think of his spirit and what a beautiful person, beautiful soul he was. And I forget, it was probably just a couple months before Ed got sick. He sent me a pair of the orange and black ones that had the blue laces. And he had them on his feet. We used to send each other pictures of our jays anytime we'd wear them. And he goes, "How clean is this?" And I still have, I still have his number in my phone, and that's still the picture that is associated with his phone number on my phone, and it will be until forever. I will always have that. And
1: he, he was one of the freshest dressed oh people in, in, in this in this business. Not even like at ESPN. Just period, like. His outfits, his jackets, his shoes, just to the nines, as they would say.
0: He was undefeated in the in the dressing department. Suits, world-class. Ties, world-class. Lapels. Tent, world-class. Just everything. And, I mean, just the light in the world. And gracious he is missed. We miss you, brother. And uh, I'm going I'm to wear them Raptor 4s today just for you. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. When I say that your investment in it is working, I mean it. Travis and I got an email this week that we are making tremendous headway with this thing. That more and more people are deciding to listen. More and more people are interacting. More and more people are enjoying it. And we're grateful for that. So thank you. Episode 100. Cannot believe it. We made it to the centennial mark. And uh, we're grateful again for Craig Elo, for Derek Anderson, and for you guys. Thank you. This is Marty Smith's America, Episode 100. We miss you, Ed. Rest well, brother.